Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Matthew. The gospel follows upon the distribution of the loaves and the fish among the 5,000. And there seems to be a connection, but there's a background to how this, this all begins. Because this gospel starts with Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. And then he was going to send the crowds away. And this is after they ate their fill. After the sending of the crowds away, however, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. So what has happened now is that we have seen in, in the story of what we call the multiplication of the loaves and the fish, where Jesus has kind of attracted the crowd to follow him and they've come unprepared. The disciples suggest, therefore, that they send them away in order that they might go to local towns or villages somewhere and, and get something to eat. And Jesus said, feed them yourself. This becomes, this is an important thing. When they look around, when the apostles look around and they realize kind of the devastation of what has happened, that you have crowds of families because the gospel mentions men, women, and children. So you have whole families that have kind of come in the enthusiastic of listening to enthusiasm of listening to Jesus and they followed him out into the wilderness and then, but they have no supplies. And so it is kind of, uh, it's a serious situation. They have no water, they have no food. And so Jesus says to the apostles, all right, they're in the midst of the wasteland now. They're in the midst of the desert. Now you feed them. And the apostles said, well, we don't have anything to feed them with. Uh, we have only five loaves and, and two fish. Think about the scenario that in the midst of a wasteland, the disciples of the Lord are concerned about the well-being of the crowds, but they think that there's nothing that they have to do for them. There's nothing they can give them. But Jesus says, feed them, give them something. And he's, they say, we have nothing, but we do have a little bit. And Jesus said, distribute the little bit. And then he prays, and the little bit turns in to an abundance. Obviously, there is a few things going on in that particular part of the gospel, an allusion to the Eucharist, even the language that he uses, the word for bread that he uses and so forth, is the same word for bread that is used in the Eucharistic texts of the New Testament. But the idea of an abundance out of little. Then, however, we also have this idea of the mission of the apostles, the mission of the disciples. Lord, what can I do? What can I do? I have so little. Who am I to do something great for you? And Jesus says, go ahead and do it, and then whatever you lack, I will make up. And I think that this is something that we were, were oftentimes hesitant about. And it leads, us, it leads us into a fallacy, actually. And the fallacy that it leads us into is somehow or other it's all up to us. Well, it's not all up to us. Nothing is all up to us. Anything that we do for the spread of the gospel is not all up to us. 
we have to invoke the Lord. We have to ask him to help us. We have to ask him to come and enter into our lives. We have to ask him to use what we have for the sake of others. We have to do that constantly in everything. But the theme of that gospel was that you have enough if you have the Lord. Now, what happened then, of course, is once he did this miraculous act of the loaves and the fish, the crowd decided that he was the Messiah, and so they were going to capture him and make him a king. In other words, they were going to impose upon the true Messiah their desire for a Messiah. They were going to impose upon him that which they wanted him to be, not respecting who he was, not being awed by who he was, but who they wanted him to be. Well, Jesus said this, obviously the apostles were part of this crowd who were, who were overwhelmed. And so Jesus said, just get, get out of here, get in the boat and, and go back across the sea, and then I'll follow you. In other words, he separated the apostles from the crowd, and then he escaped the crowd himself and went up into the hills by himself in communion with, with the Father. For he had much to discuss with the Father. It was like, when are they going to see? When are they going to understand? When are they going to grasp? And we might even imagine in the Father's conversation with the Son, we might imagine the Father saying, first, show your disciples. First, bring your disciples into line with the truth, and then turn toward the crowds. Because what happens next is that while he comes out of the hills, in the evening, he is alone, and uh, the boat is far out on the lake. John tells us it's two and a half miles out on the lake. But there was a storm, a heavy sea, it says, battling with a heavy sea, for there was a headwind. And in the fourth watch of the night, he went towards them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. So presuming that in his conversation with the Father, it becomes clear to the Lord that he, he has to manifest who the true Messiah is. And he has to manifest that to his disciples. He can't show the whole crowd because they've already, you know, in a huge group, misunderstood him and tried to force him into a position and into a situation that he didn't want to be in. And so he fled. And he sent the disciples off so they wouldn't be part of this, this kind of frenzy that was going on. Then he comes walking across the lake when they're in the midst of a heavy headwind, a heavy sea. The commentators have a very hard time with this. They say, well, what does this mean? Usually, miracles are oriented towards some kind of an effect. And to many of the commentators, this particular gospel seems to have no effect. What was the miracle all about? What was it for? But I think that if we look deeply, we can see Jesus is the master. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Not only can he pull out of the heavens the miracle of the loaves, but he can also triumph over the earth. He can walk on water without sinking. He can, it's part of, also reflective in his healing ministry, 
when he, for instance, he overcomes the powers of the earth, he overcomes disease, he overcomes sickness, he overcomes injury, he overcomes deficit and lack of any kind. That's, that's the other Johannine miracle is the wedding feast of Cana. The idea with the bread, there was an abundance of from little. In the, the wedding feast of Cana, there is an abundance from little. It is what the Lord is able to do with the littleness of our world. He is able to pull from that little in it which is good, that which is abundant, that which is great, that which is overwhelming. And so now, since the apostles were part of the crowd who, again, misinterpret the messianic role of the Lord, then what do they see? They see someone who is in charge of nature. They see someone who is the Lord of nature. And they see someone, therefore, and this is much clearer in Mark's gospel, who is the creator, the creator among them who is able, therefore, to restore and to overcome the chaos and the darkness and the evil that is part of our world. And here, it's a simply defying of the natural order, meaning that Jesus is not subject to the natural order as it has become disordered by sin, but he stands above it, is free of it, and is in charge of it. When they see him, of course, they are terrified, because it's the middle of the night, and they see someone walking on the water toward them, coming across the water, and of course they say, it is a ghost. The very same thing that they say in Luke's gospel when Jesus has risen from the dead, once again, overcoming the powers of nature because he is the Lord of nature, and appearing before them after the crucifixion, and they're terrified, and they think that he is a ghost. But he says here, do not be afraid, you know, I'm not a ghost. And Peter then saw him and said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you across the water. Peter is in his enthusiasm once again, does not bother to stop, does not want to stop and to, and to ponder and to reflect upon the mystery that stands before him. He wants to be part of it. He, he wants, he still, he still wants to be where the action is. He still wants to be in the middle of the story. And so Jesus says, come. And so Peter jumps into the water and he walks on the water. He walks on the water not because he is the Lord, but because he has momentarily believed Jesus to be Lord. And as soon as the wind comes up, he then doubts his faith. And in doubting his faith, the whole endeavor comes crashing down and he starts to sink into the sea. Jesus pulls him out and says to him, he pulls him out because Peter screams, save me, save me, I'm drowning. And Jesus puts out his hands and he holds on to him. And then he interprets the event. He looks at Peter and he says, oh man of little faith, why did you doubt? It was not faith that let Peter sink. It was doubt that let Peter sink because he didn't believe that the Lord could do what he was doing. It didn't seem real to him. Stop and think about that. It doesn't seem real to us so often to believe and to think that the Lord is doing what he's doing in the midst of the world. 
And we, like those on the boat, are terrified. And at the same time, if we saw him come into the midst of our chaos, we would be more terrified, exactly as the disciples are, because we wouldn't know what was going to happen next. And then as they got into the boat, the wind dropped, and the men on the boat bowed down before him and said, truly, you are the Son of God. This is exactly what this miracle is all about, to elicit faith in Jesus as he chooses to be Messiah and not as the crowds desire him to be. So that this is now a radical distinction. When Jesus gives the abundance of bread and fish to the crowd, when he does that, they say he must be the Messiah. Our idea of the Messiah is that he is a king. Let's grab him and crown him and make him the Messiah that we want him to be. Jesus says to the apostles, get out of here, just get out of here, just leave. And then he himself disappears into the hills. Then, knowing what they have experienced, knowing what has gone on within them and among them, being cognizant of all that, being aware of all that, he now wants them to see who the Messiah really is. The Messiah is not king. The Messiah is not general. The Messiah is not simply the one who is going to defeat all of the powers of evil. The Messiah instead is the Lord. He is the one who is in charge of creation. He is the one who has command over creation. He is the one who in these powers, his disciples must come to trust him. And the stories of the Gospels are the long and arduous stories of the struggle of the apostles to trust that Jesus is who he says that he is. Here is a radical beginning of that long evangelical struggle. Here is the beginning. When he has rejected their notion of Messiah and has revealed to them the Messiah as Lord the one who can do all things if he wills, so trust what I'm going to do. If I did not want to do it, and this comes up again in the garden, in the agony in the garden. And they say, Lord, you know, do you want us to, uh, do, do you want us to fight them? Do you want us to call out some people to help us and so forth? And Jesus, put your sword back in your scabbard. You know, don't you think I could call on the legions of angels to defend me if, if that's what was supposed to happen? but in order that the prophecies might be fulfilled, and then the story of the passion begins to unfold. Here we have high drama, and here we have the high drama of a first recognition of the disciples. They're going to go through a lot. They're going to go through this vision. They're going to see more miracles. They're going to eventually move into the passion. They're going to be scattered and terrified at the crucifixion. They're going to be unbelieving at the resurrection. And even when the resurrection appears, they still have a hard time figuring it out. So should we, therefore, be discouraged because sometimes it's a struggle for us? Should we be discouraged because sometimes the Lord is not who we want him to be? that we can set what we think the Lord ought to do, and then when he doesn't do it, 
oftentimes we come to this point, well, if he's not going to do it, I better do it myself. And as sure as we do that, you know, it's going to be the wrong thing because we have to trust him and we have to let him lead us instead of us leading him. And we can pray and we can beg and we can implore, but in the end, we follow the Lord. He does not follow us. I know many a deeply believing person, many a good Christian, who never sees it in those terms, but acts it out in those terms, that somehow or other this is all up to me. It's not that we're pacifists, and it's not that we don't do anything, but we don't assume control, and we don't take charge. We do what is proper to where we are in life and who we are, and we do the very best we can. To some, they are to go and proclaim the gospel in foreign lands. To some, they're going to serve the Lord in priesthood, religious life. To some, they're going to serve the Lord in marriage, raising families and, and living witnesses to the divine word, to the gospel. There's all different ways. Paul even said that there's teachers and administrators and all of those kinds of things. We all have a place. And we all live according to the state of life that we're in. But in that state of life, we are called to give with what little we have in order that the Lord might multiply it in the lives of others. So let's look then and see ourselves. And let's make this basically a self-examination of our own faith life, a self-examination of how we deal with the travails and the concerns and the trials of the world. We see, for instance, when out of a little, the Lord gives a lot. And we see this kind of comes to the fore, actually, like in private revelations. They're very, you know, there's, there's many of them, and they're very scattered. And there are those people who will chase after every single private revelation. In other words, trying to make Jesus the king trying to take the experience of the manifestation of the generosity and the abundance of the Lord and somehow or other use that against the rest of the world as somehow, well, you know, if so-and-so had a vision of the Lord and said that we should do this, if we don't do this, the Lord won't come. In other words, we're in charge. And that's a misinterpretation of the private, interpret of private revelations that appear. We don't have to believe in them, but if we do, they should be, we know that we believe in them authentically when they are simply awesome for us, when they simply create within us an awe of the wonder and the goodness and the love and the glory of the Lord. They are not crusades and they are not weapons to use against those who do not somehow or other come in contact with them. They are to make us wonder at the power and the presence and what the Lord can do and has done in the lives of his people. I think that we also come to the point where we become indifferent to the mission of the church because we can say to ourselves, well, you know, I mean, wh who am I? What do I have to offer? I go to work every day. Who am I to, uh, to think of myself as, as an emissary of the Lord? Well, the ones who received the abundance from the little is the image of ourselves. We all have a little, and if we use it to distribute to others as the Lord has told us to, then he himself 
will give it an abundance that we cannot give it. If we are serving him and not somehow or other ourselves, if we're not doing it to because we're important or doing it because, gee, look, look what a good Christian I am, if, if we're doing it because we care for others. Remember when Jesus gave the bread and the fish, he, he did it, he was compassionate toward them. His heart went out to them. Do our hearts go out to those who do not know Jesus Christ? Do our hearts then move us to share what little of him we carry within ourselves, trusting that he himself will make it in the life of the other person an abundance? Do we do that? Is that part of how our Christian life goes? We also, we, we get caught up in this dichotomy as well. We begin to realize and to understand we have a responsibility in this life. We have a real responsibility in this life. Do we usurp the Lord's position? You know, I, I think in terms, for instance, of environmentalism, we have been given the charge at the, from creation itself to take care of the world in which we live, to, be, to nurture it, to be good stewards of it. We are not supposed to believe that we're in charge of it. And so when we come to the idea of environmentalism and climate and so forth, this whole idea, somehow we're in charge of it. No, we're not. Is there good stewardship which we are bound and obliged to maintain within the world? Yes, there is. Pope Benedict spoke of this often. For instance, you know, we are to tend to the forests. We are to tend to the water. We are to tend to the air. We are to strive not just to exploit the planet, not just to exploit the earth, but to nurture and care for the earth so that we might live in harmony with it, enjoying the fruits that it has to give us and allowing ourselves, therefore, also to return and look kindly and carefully on the world in which we live. It isn't this frenetic uh, political hysteria. It's a religious thing. It's a theological thing. It's a matter of faith. Can we carry out what the Lord told us to do? Will, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to be careful with the things of the earth? Are we willing to care for the forests and the waters and so forth of the, of the earth? We should be, and it should be part of our policy. Must it be draconian? Must it be hysterical? No. But is it a response to God's mission to us? Yes, it is. And you know, in the midst of that mission, in the midst of that response, we also not only just have trees and water and grass and so forth, we have human beings. Can we take care of them as part of a natural world in which we live? Are we kind to them? What about this constant war business that goes on all the time? What is that? Is that, is that living out the gospel? Is that somehow or other serving the Lord? You know, these are things that we have to be cognizant of. We cannot react and we cannot do what the disciples did when at, the, at the group of the 5,000 plus. When they said, well, we just have very little, there's nothing we can do. And Jesus prays and then says, give it to them. Pray and give what I have given you and then let me do what it is that I am supposed to do. Care for others. Share with others. 
helps the faith and the wisdom and the insight that you have. Be patient, be forgiving, be understanding, seek wisdom, seek the truth of the other person. And in so doing, then learn that we are here to give away to others what the Lord has given to us. Exactly as the Lord gave away to others the very little that the disciples had possession of. And he said to them, give it to them. And he says to us, whatever little you might have, give it to others. And let the power of my prayer and of my presence as Lord of the universe, as Lord of creation, let me make sure that there is an abundance for each and every person who receives. Let us pray for that kind of perception and that kind of zeal in our lives in order that we might become effective disciples of the Lord. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Yeah.